One of my favourite subgenres of literature is the TV and film tie-in. For years, these books were the only way to relive your favourite TV show and film stories, and long before the supplementary features on Laserdiscs, DVDs and Blu-rays, these novels had the added delight of featuring extra scenes and dialogue not featured in the films. Back to the Future, Gremlins and The Black Hole all featured scenes not in the finished movies, and in some cases, like The Black Hole, cleared up some of the mysteries or plot illogicalities of the films. Some people tend to be sniffy about TV and film tie-ins, but these books led to my reading proper books. And besides, anything that got kids reading is not a bad thing in my book. My interest in the TV and novel tie-in started with Star Trek and Doctor Who. My school library carried loads of Doctor Who novels, published by Target. This range of novels came out reasonably regularly, and were full-length adaptations of Doctor Who television stories, often by the original writers. These novels were, for a lot of people, myself included, the introduction not only to earlier stories we may never have seen, due to the inconvenience of not having been born, but in the case of Doctor Who, to previous incarnations of the Doctor. Often, the novels had marvellous painted covers by Chris Chilios, and unfettered by budget, the novels could present the often cash-strapped BBC stories as the writers intended them, hampered only by the imagination. This can lead to some pretty strange memory flashes. Having read a number of the Target books leads me to believe I've seen more Doctor Who stories than I actually did. For example, I remembered the John Pertwee story, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, yet I can't have actually seen it. John Pertwee regenerated into Tom Baker just after I was being born, but when I finally saw it on DVD, I remembered certain scenes, scenes that I could not have seen. The only explanation is that I read the book and remembered it when I finally got around to seeing the story on DVD. As such, I have a fondness for a story that others often dismiss due to the let's be honest, bargain basement special effects. I think Invasion of the Dinosaurs is a top-tier third Doctor story, and that's because I first saw it in the mind's eye, and not on the small screen with rubber dinosaurs. Of course, these were all library books. The first Doctor Who novel I remember buying with my own money was the novel to the 20th anniversary story The Five Doctors by Terence Dix. Dix was a former Doctor Who story editor and a prolific Target author, penning a number of the adaptations, not only of his own stories, but of the other authors who either weren't able or didn't want to do the novels. He wrote The Five Doctors quickly when the production team's first script fell through and then rushed right into the novel. And as the 20th anniversary story, this was a big deal. The enormity of the subject matter was demonstrated by the cover, which was an embossed silver number and, in a real difference to today's ultra-secret approach, released some time before the TV special aired. In later years, this is revealed to have been a mistake. Target was supposed to release the book in conjunction with the special erring, but I don't think having the novel in my hands before the telefilm special was screened hampered my enjoyment any. 
Recently, the Target novels have made a comeback, with four new titles adapting, for the first time, episodes of the show since its revival in 2005. And, in keeping with tradition, two of these were also written by the original writers. Russell T. Davis, who brought the show back and produced the series for five years, adapted his first story, Rose. The novel is a fun, breezy read, similar to the target novels of yore, and Davis's prose is quick, sharp and funny. It's a straight adaptation of the TV script with some minor additions. Davis uses the benefit of hindsight to tidy up some plot elements and link the show in more with its own continuity. An early scene in the novel is actually a scene from the 10th Doctor's final show, The End of Time, a scene he couldn't have included in the original story as that episode hadn't been written yet. It also has the benefit of having Rose meet the 10th Doctor before she meets the 9th, although to maintain the show's internal logic, she doesn't get a good look at him. Davis also expands a scene in the middle of the story. Rose wishes to track down more about this mysterious doctor who saved her life, and this leads her to Clive, who has been looking into conspiracy theories regarding the doctor for years. In the show, Clive only seems to have pictures of the ninth doctor, played in the episode by Christopher Eccleston. But in the novel, he shows Rose pictures of all the incarnations of the doctor, including those played by Tennant, Smith, Capaldi, and Whittaker, and even more possible future incarnations that we haven't met yet. Again, to maintain the show's internal logic, Rose isn't paying much attention to the pictures of Tennant. Davis manages to evoke the memories and the feel of the older novels admirably. His prose is efficient and to the point, and his characterisation in keeping with the show. He even introduces a new subplot that I suspect will go nowhere, which is a shame as it was very intriguing. He also squeezes in a cameo from future companion Donna Noble. The other recent Target novel, written by a show writer, is The Day of the Doctor, written by Stephen Moffat and based upon his own script for the show's 50th anniversary. By contrast, Moffat's novel plays around with the structure of his story in a way that the more linear teleplay didn't, and he bounces around in time more. The result is a more adult novel than Rose, although he too uses the benefit of time and lack of budget to add scenes that the TV shows couldn't have afforded, including appearances by all of the other Doctors in additional moments, rather than just having old clips play on the monitor screen. Moffat's novel also has more than a touch of Douglas Adams to it. It's a more challenging read than Rose, but still worth picking up for the additions to the story. After they adapted all the TV shows, or all the ones they had the rights to anyway, the Doctor Who range moved into all new and original stories, although they still have some novelizations and surprises up their sleeves. The past few years have seen novels of episodes written by Douglas Adams, which were left out of the original run for rights issues, and due to the fact that Adam used a lot of his Doctor Who ideas in his own books, particularly Life, the Universe and Everything, and Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. Even more recently, we've finally seen adaptations of the other Dalek stories that were also never adapted due to rights issues. Doctor Who has also recently pulled off the neat trick of novelising a film that never happened. Actor Tom Baker recently adapted his and actor Ian Martyr's script for Doctor Who Meets Scratchman with author James Goss. Scratchman was developed by Baker and Martyr in the late 1970s and would have featured Baker's Doctor, Ian Martyr's character Harry Sullivan and Elizabeth Sladen as Sarah Jane Smith. The project was quite far along when it fell through and although it wouldn't have been an ultra-big budget affair, it would have been more than the BBC could afford for the TV show. 
I'm currently a few chapters into this novel as I record this, and Baker captures the characters perfectly, although Baker's voice still shines through. Baker has written a novel before, The Boy Who Kicked Pigs, so I'd be interested to know who did what on this project. Of course, as Target was winding up its adaptations of Doctor Who episodes, Star Trek was already publishing new stories that complemented the series. As with Who, I started reading Trek novels for pretty much the same reason as the Who ones. The adaptations of the TV shows were often based on earlier drafts of the shows, and as such, played out slightly differently. This made them fascinating to me. Adapted by James Bleach, and my copies also featured some magnificent Chris Achilios covers, the Trek novels differed from Who in a major way. These slimmer tomes could feature a number of different episodes in one novel. Blish initially adapted them as short stories rather than fully fleshed out narratives in their own right. With considerably less material to adapt than Doctor Who, Star Trek quickly expanded into original stories and filling in the gaps in the series. I recently read The Lost Years by J.M. Dillard, a novel set after the series and before the first film. I'm fascinated by the gap filling because, let's be honest, there's no real way to make the Trek timeline make sense. Now, go with me here. If we use the real years Trek was filmed as the basis for the fictional Trek timeline to ascertain when events happened, we can use this to work out when the events happened for the characters in the fictional 23rd century. For example, Star Trek debuted in 1966, although the second pilot episode was made in 1965. Instantly, the Star Trek timeline is confused by two elements. The first pilot, filmed in 1964 but retroactively set 14 years earlier in 1950, and Star Trek The Motion Picture, released in 1979 but set in 1974, based upon the idea that the five-year mission ended in 1971, and the film, as stated in dialogue in the movie, is set two and a half years after the conclusion of that five-year mission. And yes, I know the animated series aired in 1973 and 1974, but there are no indicators that the five-year mission was ever anything but five years, so the animated shows have to take place earlier than they aired, like maybe the fourth year of the five-year mission. We also have to ignore here that the second pilot clearly takes place sometime before the first season, Meaning, there could be as much as six months to a year between that second pilot, where no man has gone before, and the first episode proper. But that screws everything up even more, so we're just going to ignore it. Carrying on, Star Trek II is set 15 years after the events of an episode called Space Seed, which aired in 1967, meaning Star Trek II is in real time. This means there are eight years in between the first and second film. Some have speculated that there is another five-year mission of the Enterprise crew after the first film, which accounts for five of those years. This means there is three years in between the two movies for Kirk to be despound again, and this can be used to explain his malaise in Star Trek II. Fine, I quite like that idea, I'm on board that idea. However, in Trek II, Kirk has an important birthday. This is assumed to be his 50th, even though this is never mentioned. In the Deadly Years episode in 1967, Kirk's age is 34. The episode originally aired in December, so there's a little bit of wiggle room, but 50 is a good guess. Now, ignoring that 50 would be nothing in the era of Star Trek, this jibes with Star Trek 2 being back in real time. 
Treks 2, 3 and 4 are all a trilogy that take place roughly over the space of one year. The only date given is three months in between Star Treks 3 and 4. This means that like the Rocky series, the years are now so out of whack and Treks 2 and 4 are all in 1983. Trek 5, released in 1989, doesn't state how long after Star Trek 4 it is, but they took the Enterprise out to give her a shakedown cruise at the end of number 4 and came back realising that the Enterprise A was a dog. Scotty is working on her and everyone else has been given shore leave, so let's be charitable and assume that by this point we're in 1984. Star Trek 6, however, states that McCoy has been the ship surgeon on the Enterprise for 27 years, setting it two years after its release date of 1991. That's another nine years accounted for. Did Kirk and crew have another five-year mission after Star Trek V? Also, and this is nothing to do with the timeline, it's just something that's bugged me ever since the movie came out, why is Kirk retiring at only 60 years of age? Over my lifetime, we have seen the retirement age rise by over 10 years. So presumably by the 23rd century, Kirk has at least another 10 to 15 years left in him. Anyway, this leaves a lot of Star Trek to be explored. The Lost Years attempts to do that and succeeds for the most part. The first half of the book is the most successful, as Dillard attempts to explain why Kirk accepted a promotion he didn't really want and that everybody was telling him was a mistake. The main plot, in comparison, wasn't as interesting. I guess my point is that with so much time unexplored, two potential five-year missions, why do authors set so many of those stories in the timeline of the original series? I always gravitated to stories set after Star Trek The Motion Picture as a younger reader. Novels like Diane Duane's The Wounded Sky, Howard Weinstein's The Covenant of the Crown, A.C. Crispin's Yesterday's Sun, and Vonda McIntyre's The Entropy Effect had covers with the characters in their motion picture uniforms, so they could easily be set then. It also removes the obstacle of setting everything in the original five-year mission. If we assume that the animated series, which totaled 22 episodes, is the fourth year of the five, that's only one year at the end, and however long in between the second pilot and the series, to set stories. That was a busy five years. It can be daunting getting into the Trek novels. There are a lot of them, of every flavour, from novelizations of the films and episodes to original stories. The film novels for the original crew are the better ones, Vonda McIntyre fills in a lot of gaps in her novels for Star Trek 2 through 4, and GM Dillard's novel for Trek 5 revealed that all the problems with the films were in its production and budget, as the novel is pretty good. Star Trek 6's novel has loads of scenes in it that were left on the cutting room floor of the film for reasons of budget, including the revelation that Carol Marcus and Kirk had resolved their differences and got back together. The animated series also has novels by Alan Dean Foster that really flesh out the stories. In some cases, one 22-minute episode is the basis for a full novel. There are even fiefdoms of continuity within the novels themselves. William Shatner himself penned a series of books with Gar and Judith Reeve Stevens, resurrecting James T. Kirk after his ignominious death in the movie Generations. These books ignored all other continuity and are regarded as its own canon, the Shatnerverse. 
Shatner and the Reeves Stevens collaborated on ten novels in total, with the first nine being three interlinked trilogies, and the final one being set in Kirk's Academy days. Allegedly, there was to be two further novels in the Academy Days series, but the J.J. Abrams movies put paid to them. The Shatner novels start off as great fun, with The Ashes of Eden and The Return being really enjoyable. But as the novels go along, Shatner seems to forget the more human elements of Kirk, and he becomes more and more the infallible superhero. Kirk was interesting because he had human frailties. Having him always be right, it's a tad boring. New stories set after the end of all the series, the original, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, The Next Generation, Enterprise, etc., are also interesting to look at. And there are stories, like Federation, in which Kirk and Picard meet, and early tales of Captain Pike's tenure as captain of the Enterprise, that are actually better than what we were given on screen. My favourite of the Pike novels was Vulcan's Glory by series writer DC Fontana, where she adds a lot to Pike and Spock's relationship. Likewise, Diane Duane's novels The Romulan Way and My Enemy, My Ally flesh out the Romulans and depict a race far more intriguing than anything seen on television. The movie Generations had a throwaway line about Sulu's daughter, and this gave writer Peter David the impetus to write a pretty decent novel called The Captain's Daughter, which expanded upon that idea and made it work far more than the idea that Kirk would share his fantasy land with a heretofore unheard of girlfriend, and not Edith Keeler, Carol Marcus, or one of his dead wives. The original series novels tend to be better than the others because there is more room for the exploration of the characters and their development over time. Although the Next Generation crew have had a number of novels set after the movie Nemesis, which I'm sure will be contradicted by the new Picard series currently in development. The best Next Generation novels tend to be written by Peter David, with Imzadi and Q in Law being at the top of the heap, although his Borg novel Vendetta is pretty good, as is Q Squared, where he finally gets into print his fan service idea that Trelane, from the original series episode The Squire of Gothos, was a member of the Q Continuum. The only Trek series to not feature novels expanding on the canon is the new Kelvinverse series of films. Novels were planned, but axed at the last minute, even after a few of the books had been solicited. No official reason was ever given, but given the production company Bad Robot and its vice-like grip on all ancillary merchandise, one can only assume they didn't want the far more imaginative novels embarrassing them with stories that actually understood what Star Trek was. Whatever your flavour of Trek, though, there will be a novel or a series of novels that cater to your tastes. So far I've talked about long-running established franchises, but recently Firefly made a comeback as a trilogy of novels, the first two of which are out now. The highest accolade I can bestow upon the first novel, Big Damn Hero by James Lovegrove, is that it feels like an adaptation of the season 2 premiere we never got. The story smells like a Firefly story, the characters all sound like we remember them, and the plot feels a part of the verse. Mal is kidnapped by people out for vengeance on independence, and the crew must find him and save him, if they can. Taking Mal out of the equation allows Lovegrove to focus on the crew of Serenity without Captain Tightpants and how they function without him. As you may expect, if you're a fan, Zoe's a damn good captain all on a lonesome, but I reckon Jane would be getting booted off the ship a mite quicker if she were in charge full time. 
The book just runs. I read this in two days. That's how enjoyable it was. And it was a delight to spend some more time with these people. Hopefully the next novel, The Magnificent Nine, and written by the same author, will be just as good. Probably second only to Star Trek in the expanded universe novels is Star Wars. Star Wars has been in the tie-in game since before the first film came out, with George Lucas's novel for the first film, actually ghosted by Alan Dean Foster, premiering in November 1976, six months before the film. Compare that to now, when, even if a film gets a novelisation, it tends to come out after the movie has been released. Foster followed this up with Splinter of the Mind's Eye, and then Brian Daly and L. Neil Smith each wrote a trilogy of pulpy science fiction novels, Daly's featuring Han Solo and Chewbacca, and Smith's featuring Lando Calrissian. And after that, nothing. Until, in 1991, Star Wars made a massive splash by returning, not as a movie series, but as a trilogy of novels by Timothy Zahn. Zahn's books, Ur to the Empire, Dark Force Rising and The Last Command reinvigorated Star Wars on the printed page, leading to over 20 years of Star Wars stories set in, around and after the films. The prequel movies even incorporated canonical elements from the novels, such as the name Coruscant, something that never happened, and led the readers to treat the Star Wars novels as being part of the overall tapestry of the saga. Whilst I greatly enjoyed Zahn's initial trilogy, I do feel a fundamental mistake was made in these novels. Star Wars in print was treated as science fiction, which it isn't. Not really. Star Trek can get away with hard science fiction, like the novels of Diane Duane, because at its heart, Star Trek is science fiction. Star Wars, though, is space fantasy, a different genre, and it shares more in common with the pulpy side of sci-fi, like Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers, than the loftier ambitions of Star Trek, which strives to be Robert Heinlein by way of C.S. Forrester. For me, the best Star Wars novels were set around the prequel movies. Whilst the prequels have their flaws as films, the characters, the settings, the backstory, and the development of the characters are actually far richer than the original trilogy. Han Solo isn't much of a character when you sit and think about it, and after Return of the Jedi, his story arc's pretty much done. But Anakin Skywalker's tragic fall, Obi-Wan's failure to teach Anakin correctly, and Anakin's doomed romance with Padme Amidala are all the stuff of glorious, mythic storytelling. My favourites of the prequel-era novels are Shatterpoint by Matt Stover, Kenobi by John Jackson Miller, and The Fall of Anakin Skywalker, Rise of Darth Vader trilogy, which opens and closes with Labyrinth of Evil and Dark Lord, The Rise of Lord Vader by James Luceno, and features as its middle chapter what is, in my opinion, one of the best novelizations of a movie ever written, Revenge of the Sith by Matthew Stover. Shatterpoint is a dark-as-hell story about war and its effects on people, and it really fleshes out the character of Mace Windu in ways the movie series couldn't. I wouldn't want all of my Star Wars to be as dark as this novel, but as a one-off, it was a compelling page-turner. Obi-Wan scores a ton of points for being a western, but set on Tatooine. Obi-Wan, newly arrived on the planet, is the taciturn stranger who gets caught up in a local power struggle. Miller's novel is an excellent standalone for those clamouring for more of Ewan McGregor's charming everyman take on Obi-Wan. 
It was also pretty easy to just follow Timothy Zahn's work without really delving into the further expanded universe. And if you read those novels in order, you could pretty much figure out what was going on with the other stuff. After all, some of the other Expanded Universe books were pretty daunting as they stretched out into six, seven and sometimes ten-part novel series. Of Zahn's other works, Choices of One was one of my favourites, not least for featuring an expanded role for fan-favourite character Mara Jade, but for the lengths that it went to to have Mara and Luke be in the same place at the same time but just keep missing each other so as to retain continuity with the other novels. Michael Reeves wrote a really interesting trilogy of books about the last surviving Jedi working as a noir Rick Deckard type detective in the bowels of Coruscant that were far more fun than they had any right to be. A fourth book in the series was called The Last Jedi. A notable mention here also for Anne Crispin's trilogy of young Han Solo novels, The Paradise Snur, The Hut, Gambit and Rebel Dawn, for not only being great, but for featuring an awful lot of material Lucasfilm would mine for both the Rogue One and Solo movies. Tie-in novels and such are on the way out now. Star Trek and Doctor Who still cling on to a dwindling readership, but even the Star Wars novels aren't as prolific as they used to be. Outside of that, novelizations seem to have largely gone away as well. Very few of the Marvel movies have novel tie-ins, although Marvel do have a range of novels based on comic book stories, and in some cases, original stories. In many ways, the decline is symptomatic of the lack of depth or backstory in the newer incarnations of these classics. Star Wars was replete with characters and situations that just demanded further imaginative speculation, whereas the sequel series doesn't really have any of that. Ray has no backstory to explore, neither does Finn, so where do the writers go? It's telling that the Star Wars novel series are still stuck exploring the prequel and original trilogies, largely because the new films have given them nothing to work with. Likewise, Star Trek. Abrams' movie stripped away all of the backstory of the characters. The Kirk of the new movies didn't have 15 years of working up to being a captain. In Star Trek The Entitled Generation, he's just given a captaincy just for the hell of it. He's a less interesting character as a result, and maybe that's why the Kelvinverse series of novels was stillborn. All things must pass, and maybe that's why the tie-in novels are dying. Possibly the new fans aren't interested in reading stories that aren't canon, something I can honestly say never even crossed my mind when I read, say, Splinter of the Mind's Eye. A good story is a good story, and if it doesn't quite fit, well, that's what fanon is for. I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran, and we want to ask you an important question. Are you sick and tired of other panel discussion shows wasting your time droning on and on about foreign policy, economics, and human rights? Or do you want to hear conversations about things that actually matter? We host a podcast called Radio vs. the Martians. Every month we gather a panel of our nation's finest minds and plunge a rusty prison shank into the heart of tough questions that have an impact on the lives of real people like you. Like, are drivers required to pull over for the Ghostbusters? Is the United Federation of Planets actually an oppressive dictatorship run by guidance counselors? Is Arnold Schwarzenegger secretly a genius? And are we being mean when we laugh at movies that are so bad they're good? So write your congressman and let them know that Radio vs. the Martians is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on RadioVersusTheMartians.com. 
Okay, let's delve into the email sack. Treasure room at the palace is from Keith Mason. Hello again, Andy. Hi, Keith. It has been an interesting few months in the monkey house, but in that time you've put out a number of cracking episodes. I hope you don't mean interesting in the sense of the... Is it the Japanese or the Chinese phrase, may you live in interesting times, which is a curse? So I hope interesting is a positive in this particular instance. Um, Keith says, Miles Morales, the not-quite-so-amazing Spider-Man. After the death of Ultimate Peter Parker, a new Spider-Man seemed like a good idea in the Ultimate comics. And given the chance to have some different representation, Marvel gave us Miles. And, well, it was less than exciting. The problem with Brian Michael Bendis as a writer is that he is so prolific. You get the feeling that most of what he does is great because there is so much of it. But for every alias, there's something like this. I found it difficult to get past a few issues of Miles' early appearances, and your episode did little to make me reconsider. But the recent Spider-Verse film made it clear that the character has legs, even if it was his creator that couldn't find them. Yeah, I'm pretty much on that. I think Into the Spider-Verse fixed every problem that I had with Miles Morales, made him a vital and interesting character with his own agency, his own set of problems, and crucially to me, gave him a personality, which I feel he didn't have in the Bendis books. The year is 2258. Babylon 5 was a nice little show I remember fondly from the 90s that I revisit once a decade or so. It was one of the first shows that used serial storytelling in that manner, with the series-long arcs and lack of resetting the status quo after the fourth act. It was also one of the first CGI-heavy shows, which led to amazing space battles that stand up even now. It had excellent actors, well-written scripts, and unlike most of Star Trek, it had stakes. The first season was mostly of lower quality compared to the later seasons, but there was gold even then. From the PPGs rather than the magic wand phases and rotating sections instead of artificial gravity, as well as the less-than-utopian future, it was the series that seemed more plausible. It also had some of the best spaceship designs on TV at that point, and it's hard to find its successor. Thank you for shining a light on this gem. Well, uh, I personally think that Battlestar Galactica was a worthy successor to Babylon 5. It owes a lot to Babylon 5 in terms of many of the story ideas that Galactica did, Babylon 5 did as well, but Galactica put a different spin on them. I also think The Expanse is pretty damn good as proper science fiction, and that's well worth checking out. I still need to catch I've only seen the first season of that, and now it's all on Amazon Prime, and they've renewed it themselves for a third or fourth season, I forget which. I keep meaning to go back to it and start it from the beginning and watch it all again. But my memory is that The Expanse was pretty damn good. The Sequest to find an audience. Sequest DSV was one of those Saturday afternoon type programs that was a bit of a curio. Not good enough to tune into, but watchable when it was on. It was a program that suffered the broom problem. If you change the bristles, change the head, change the pole, is it the same broom? I get the feeling it was created with a loving hand, but was never really going to be what it was intended and faded away before what it could have been revealed itself. It's one of those shows that would be a real find at a market stall or a second-hand place. It still had some great ideas and was glad that you brought it back to mind. 45 years on and still amazing. So glad to see more of the Ramita Lee years of Spider-Man. Everything I think of has been quintessentially Spidey's in these pages, changed from Ditko's bold new vision of a superhero into, at times, riveting melodrama and balls-to-the-wall action. As much as I've enjoyed Daredevil-based Kingpin stories, his interactions with Spider-Man has always felt more like the true Fisk. He was larger than life, seriously no pun intended, entertaining and had his own melodrama to work with, and every time he popped up it was a bit of a treat, much in the same way that Dr. Octopus was. 
The power of them showing up so much in this era was to its benefit. And it's this time period I think of most highly of in hindsight. This Peter was at times an ass, but you really felt that he had his heart in the right place. I am wondering where you will stop with all the Spider-Man coverage. Will you go past Ramita and get to the multiple up-nose shots from the Conway Kane era? Which is where I am in my reading right now. Whatever you decide, I'll be listening. Well, I think I'll just carry on forever with Spider-Man. I could quite happily just churn out episode after episode about Spider-Man. Um, as it currently stands, I, I, re I plan to go through the omnibuses. And given that a fourth omnibus is on the way, that, that's quite a number of issues. So I'm definitely aiming to go up to issue 100. Um, even though I've covered issue 99, so I don't know whether I should stop there. I don't know, it's a possibility. Um, I probably wouldn't do the Clone Saga again, because I did that on Hey Kids Comics with Michael. We did a deep dive into that. And also, we did The Night Gwen Stacy Died, so I'd probably skip that. But I certainly have no desire to stop doing Spider-Man. It's certainly a possibility of stopping at the Lee Ramita stuff, the Lee... I think possibly the best thing to do with that would be go up to Jerry Conway and stop at Jerry Conway because I've covered a lot of Jerry Conway's more important stories on Hey Kids Comics and then come back for Roger Stern's run because I've also covered most of Marv Wolfman's run on this show. So I suppose the best thing to do would be stop at Conway Give Len Wein his due, because I don't think he gets the credit he deserves. Skip Marv Wolfen, and then go straight to Denny O'Neill and Roger Stern, and then through Tom DeFalco, and then see where we go from there. I would be interested in covering the Michelini McFarlane run, again, because I've got the omnibus, that makes it easier to pull them off the shelf. But um, we'll see. We'll see where it will. It's a while before I get there. I'm definitely interested in going as far as issue 99, because I've already covered 99, so... Listen out for all of that. Feels a lot more Trek than Trek. I've enjoyed Discovery. Its first season was triumphant, and halfway through the second, it's heading along the same lines in terms of quality. But after listening to your episode about the Orville, I realise you're right. The Orville feels more like Trek than Trek. From the optimistic future, to the colourful uniforms, to its worlds and themes, and after a week's start, it became the show that I looked forward to watching more than any other of that year. I expected some of the worst elements of McFarlane would make this unwatchable, but his writing and his acting here have been surprisingly capable. He could have written for Trek, as it was, and done a hell of a job, but here he gets to forge his own legend. My wife, the mighty Rosie, likens it to one of the other ships in Starfleet. It's not the flagship or the newest ship of the line, but one of those ships in the middle with the good but not great crew and less of a pressure to be the best in the fleet. These are not the guys you would have on the flagship, but... Are we more likely to relate to those people than the best of the best? I don't know many people at the top of the class at the academy, but I've known more than a few people who've ended up out of their depth. Identity was something special, a more polished show than the best of both worlds, and one I will watch again before too long. I look forward to seeing what happens next with the show that is more Trek than Trek. Now Voyager, or maybe later. In an effort to avoid watching the televisual delights my son enjoys, last year I put on some Voyager and Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine was a bit of a damp squib for him, but he really enjoyed Voyager. I didn't, mostly because of the ropey nature of that first few seasons. After Seven of Nine joins the crew, adding some conflict to the show, things improved, but not tremendously. That said, there were some gold in them there hills, and I was quite happy in listening to your episodes to be reminded of that. 
Seasons four and five were the show's peak, showing good ideas and solid characterization that established you how good the series could have been. Trek suffered the lack of competition in that era. It was an established brand that could really write its own ticket, meaning they didn't have to worry so much about the other shows as they were the only game in town. With more pressure to excel, hungrier writers and maybe a cast change or two, <coughs> Beltran, this show could have been something special. Many of the episodes you showcased were excellent, but only served to highlight how good the show could have been all of the time. But the lessons have been learned and better shows have come along since. Thank you for this, consistently my favourite podcast. Whatever order I have for whatever I'm listening to, this gets reshuffled when I see a new Palace episode is available. I hope you and yours are well and that you enjoyed your recent holiday and I look forward to whatever delights shine on from the Palace. Kindest regards, Keith Mason. Being me so you don't have to. Well, thank you, Keith. Uh, I bump into Keith quite regularly at uh, the Liverpool Comic Marts. Always nice to see him. Occasionally he brings his wife and son. Nice to say hi to them as well. So uh, if there's um, if you're at any of these Golden Orbit Comic Marts that happen in Manchester or Liverpool, uh, I normally go to a couple of them a year. So if you're at one of them, say hi. Anyway, that about wraps it up for this time. As usual, I've got more than a couple of shows in the writing stages. So who knows what could end up coming up next. I will say... If you want to go to archive.org and download Jerry Anderson's Stingray, that may not be a waste of your time. Just a nudge nudge. As ever, the Palace of Glittering Delights is a two true freaks presentation, and you can email me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com, or, you know, chat via Facebook and Twitter and all that filth. I always like hearing from people. Uh, I'll see you next time, and remember, everything's going to be okay, provided we don't make Michael Gove Prime Minister. Good night.